This episode is brought to you by LMNT. Healthy hydration isn't just about drinking water, it's about water plus electrolytes. It makes sense, you lose both water and sodium when you sweat. Both need to be replaced to prevent muscle cramps, headaches and energy dips. But most people only replace the water. Why? Well, because since the 1940s we've been told to drink 8 glasses of water per day, thirsty or not. Drinking beyond thirst is a bad idea. It dilutes blood electrolyte levels, especially sodium, which leads to headaches, low energy, cramps, confusion, or even worse. This low sodium situation called hyponatremia is very common amongst endurance athletes, shift workers, and those who work outside in the heat, leading to thermal stress. The solution isn't to stop drinking water, it's to drink water plus electrolytes. This is where LMNT comes in. Just mix this flavor, electrolyte drink mix, into your water bottle and you're good to go. It's got no sugar or artificial junk, just electrolytes. LMNT has your electrolyte needs covered. Former research biochemist Rob Wolf and Keto Gains founder Tyler Cartwright and Louis Villasener formulated LMNT to provide the optimal ratios of sodium, potassium and magnesium for health, performance and energy. They also formulated LMNT to please your palate. Many different flavors such as orange salt, citrus salt, watermelon salt and many many more. Just head over to LMNT to find out. Or better still, go down to the show notes, click on the link, the sleep for performance link, to get um, to click on this and get your free promotional pack where you can get a taster pack and no questions asked refund policy as well. You don't even need to send it back. So check it out at LMNT in the show notes. Where's your coffee? Cheers. Cheers. Congratulations, uh, Mitchell Turner, recently finished his PhD and defended your PhD. When's the graduation, Mitch? Uh, February. February. Yeah. yeah. So you'll be drunk for the month of February. Back <laughs> on board on March. <laughs> so, Mitch, you recently finished your PhD here at Edith Cowan University, where we're recording here today at Edith Cowan University in Western Australia, ECU. But uh, before we talk about your PhD, Mitch, let's talk a little bit about you. Um, what did you? Wh- where did you grow up? Where, where was your... Um, from, from here. From Perth. here in Perth, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, not far from here, about 20 minutes um, sort of southeast of here. So born and bred here in Perth? Yep. Probably the first person actually born and bred in Perth that I know because it's full of foreigners here. It is, yeah, yeah. 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 It's, yeah. it's actually rare to find someone who's from here than... than uh, yeah. Away. Now, you have a keen interest in sport, Mitch. Uh, growing up, did you play a lot of sport? Were you interested in sport? Um, how did that kind of love for sport start? Yeah, so um, growing up, I played um, tennis and, um, as everyone does here in, in Australia, plays uh, a bit of footy as well. AFL. Uh, yeah. AFL, AFL, yeah. AFL, yeah. Australian, yeah. Foot- yeah. Um, Australian rules. Um, and then I took uh, tennis more seriously, so I stopped playing footy when I was around 12 and yeah. um, ended up... Um, yeah, ended up playing seven days a week of tennis. And, really? And yeah. Seven days a week? Yeah, I was playing, um, yeah, just sort of training Monday to Friday. Then I'd play men's pennants on Saturday and then junior pennants on Sunday, uh, which is like the wow. competitions and then tournaments or school holidays. Um, yep. So that was kind of my um, teenage years, was just traveling around and, and playing tennis. And so you must have been pretty good. Um, I was okay. I don't think yeah. I was obviously not good enough to, to make anything um, serious of it, but I, I played um, sort of state level and... Yep. Um, yeah, just sort of state level tournaments and a few national tournaments and stuff like that. So and is there a pathway from that to go professional? Um, yeah, there is. So you can, well, there's sort of mainly two two avenues. You can go down um, more tournament um, or a competition. So you yeah. sort of work up different levels of tournaments and and, um, and sort of make it onto the satellite tour and, and challenger tour and then and then all the way up to professional, like which is like the mm. ATP and what we see on TV. Yeah. Um, or there's uh, the American college system. So a lot of um, players will sort of try out for American college, just like college sport, like NFL, um, NFL and basketball and yeah, things like yeah. that, um, and sort of compete there. And then after that, you can obviously try and um, break onto the um, tour as well. So And was that ever a goal of yours to go and play like college tennis in America or to do something similar? Yeah, it was. So yeah. I um, ended up going, I got scouted by a college scout to go over and play in America. Mm. Um, but it just, yeah, it didn't sort of work out what I was doing at the time. And, um, and yeah, I sort of had a keen interest in, in a few other areas of, um, at that stage, it kind of sort of maybe weaned off a little bit of, of playing professional. I sort of realized, I think at that point that professional tennis was not going to be for me. So, um, 
What, yeah. what, why, why do you think it was going to be for you? What, what made you change your mind? Oh, it wasn't good enough. <laughs> it wasn't good enough, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I saw that, yeah, obviously the, the level of competition, yeah. you know, here in WA is one thing where sort of um, you can be a big fish in a small pond. And yeah. um, once you start playing more, even just Australia level, um, Australia wide and, and players from, a lot of players from South Africa used to come over and, and really? compete here. In Western um, Australia or in Australia? In Western Australia. So we had a yeah, big yeah. Uh, tournament here that a lot of um, South Africans used to come over and they used to just yeah wipe the floor with us. So it was a bit of a wake-up call to we thought we were pretty good until we, we met them and yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then we realised we weren't. So. And did you come from a tennis family? Was your family like sort of engrossed no, in tennis? No? No, 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 no one in my family played tennis at all. Um, it was just something that I think it got into... Um, I think friends, uh, some family friends were sort of doing some yeah. like once a week tennis um, lessons. And then my parents just said, yeah, go down and do that with my sister. And um, and then, yeah, I just ended up yeah, loving it and loving it. Just sort of going from there. So. Well, why did you love it? What, what, what attracted you to tennis compared to other sports? What was the what was the kind of what was in it for you? Um, I think I enjoyed like obviously um, when you're young, you want to play more. Um, and it's sort of like if you're playing straight rules football or, or soccer or basketball or any other sport you know you um you maybe don't get to to play as much whether it's you know i played um, i was like i said footy and and sometimes you mm. got stuck up in the forward line and and the ball didn't come down to you yeah, for yeah, for the 10 whole, minutes yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um you know it was kind of like you got to you to compete um i was very competitive um like to the point where it was probably not a healthy <laughs> competitive yeah um and i think that was being able to just rely on myself like just kind of like compete myself and it was all on me um and i was kind of like have more control i guess over the outcome um than maybe in a team sport where you can still have played well but um you know you might still lose and, and things like that so um yeah i don't know it just it was something about that kind of one-on-one -on -one, um competition that you could you know did you like the more one-on-one -on -one competition or did you like having just more control over what could happen in the competition um probably a bit of both probably a bit of both like I, I felt like it was I, I guess similar to a lot of other one-on-one -on -one sports um you know it was it's you're kind of it's it's you versus obviously the your opposition and it was yeah. kind of like if I can beat you then you know it's like I'm better than you you yeah, know yeah. um and then obviously yeah the control over um you know that the harder I train the better I'm going to be whereas you know that can be the hard thing in team sports sometimes is that if you feel like your team maybe aren't putting the work that you are or that you know um maybe it's other other reasons it's things yeah, outside yeah. of your control yeah, yeah. that can impact yeah um, and the same thing can happen in tennis obviously you can still there can be outside sources that that impact your performance that yeah you know and so how old were you when you decided right i'm not going to kind of pursue tennis as a profession how, how old were you at that stage um well i think i got i got into coaching when i was about 15, 16, um, I started sort of working with my coach at the time and sort of doing some of the junior lessons. Um, and so I think it was probably around, maybe around 17, maybe, yeah, pro probably around 17. I, I um, sort of had, had sort of made the decision by then, I think, or, or in my mind, it was kind of like, okay, it's, yeah, maybe 16, 16, 17, that I, it was not going to um, pursue tennis as, as a sort of as a career. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that it was more, I'd sort of gone more into the coaching by then. I'd sort of done a lot more coaching by then. And obviously if you're playing like seven days a week and you're coaching and you're sort of very busy, what was your sort of focus in academia? Were uh, you, were it you, was none. You, so you weren't really kind of a school nerd. You weren't really into no. like doing stuff. You were just more obsessed with tennis. Yeah, it was yeah. more just, I have to do this during the day before I can go to tennis. And yeah, then it really. was, um, yeah, school was, uh, I wasn't very, um, I wasn't a very good student, I don't think, at school. Really? Um, yeah, no, yeah. I actually ended up leaving school um about halfway through year 11 yeah so in year 11 i did a uh traineeship um so one day a week i would work in my sports department and i would help um the junior, the teachers with the primary school um and then so i was doing a, a certificate two which is like a tafe equivalent course yep. um <clears throat> and then i was told or i was sort of learned through reading a bit more that um if you go and just go to TAFE you start at certificate three rather yeah. than starting at certificate two is kind of worse it's like pointless so I was like well, why don't I just go do that then like why am I here at school doing this four days a week um and yeah so that's when I decided to leave school and, and just go to TAFE um and go down that path and then yeah ended up coming to university and so you never finished high school no 
No. I love this. I know. I know. <laughs> this yeah. is great. <laughs> and I, and I, do, I do try and tell people that as well that, you know, like um, obviously now finishing my PhD and stuff that speak to a lot of um, people that are kind of deciding when they, uh, or like high school students and, and when I was coaching a lot as yeah. well. And not that I was telling every kid to drop out of school or anything like yeah, that, yeah, yeah. but it was kind of trying to say to them that there's, there's other pathways. Yeah. And I know my parents were quite skeptical um, when I wanted to leave school because they thought, oh, that's, that's it. You know, if you do that, you know, you're you're either going to go get a trade and, and, and um, you know, be an electrician or something like that or, you know, you're not going to – you're never going to go to university or anything like that because it was always just kind of like taught or like as we knew mm. was that you had to do your ATAR and, you know – Just go to a traditional path. Yeah, exactly, yeah. and then go into yeah. university and try and get in that way. But Were your parents quite worried, do you think? Were they kind of like, oh, Mitch has gone off the rails here, like what are we going to do? I think they probably still think that a little bit. (laughs) Um, I think um, my dad was um, more concerned. I probably didn't realize at the time, maybe. I should have heard afterwards. I think he sort of said, like, um, how about how concerned he was Mm -hmm. um, with me doing that. Um, But that was, they supported me to to do it. They kind of, neither of them ended up going down, like, neither of them went to university or anything like that. So I don't think they were kind of like, steadfast on the oh you must go to a degree mm. or anything like that they knew there was other avenues um you know work-wise and stuff mm. to do um so yeah they, they supported me through it yeah yeah it's like um in the book of five rings which is a philosophy book Miyamoto musashi says there's more than one way to the top of the mountain yeah i think it's so true like you know you don't always have to you know go through and just like you said, get an ATAR, go to uni, do a PhD, blah, blah, blah. There's different, different ways to do it, which I think is good for people to know. Not that we said to people like drop out when you get a bit of hardship, but not every pathway is going to be the same for everybody and everybody's exactly. got to take different paths in life. And I think the key is, I always said to people, if you're on a path, it's better. But if you're on no path, then it's yeah. not good. Like you have to be doing something and to I be actually getting somewhere. You know, you can't just sit there like and have no... Yeah. And just be in a state of inertia where nothing's happening. You need to create momentum going forward. So I think the benefit there was you are actually doing something going forward to a goal. Yeah. Whether it be search one, two, three, four, something, but you were actually moving forward. Yeah. And that's, I think the thing as well is that you have to know exactly what you're just saying. You have to know what you're going into. That I don't think there's any point in dropping out because you don't like school or it's like, yeah, hard or anything like that. It's probably more about, well, I know I want to do this and okay, I can do it in a different way. I don't yeah. have to do it in the traditional way. So yeah. um, I knew what I wanted to go study at TAFE and I went straight from school to TAFE and you know, sort of mm-hmm. went down that path. So. so tell me about the transition from TAFE to university. How, how did that occur? What happened there? How did that Yeah, manifest? so I did my cert three and four in fitness, um, yeah. which is kind of like a personal training course here in, in WA. Um, and then at that point, because that was a year, I was um, wanting to go to university and do sports science. Um, but at that point, I was still technically should have been halfway through year 12. So all my, um, I guess, um, contemporaries were at, still at school. So um, when I spoke to a few universities, they sort of said, you can technically, you, I could start mid-semester then, but they didn't advise it. They sort of said like, you know, you're gonna be probably quite young mm-hmm. um, to do that. So I ended up going and doing a diploma in remedial massage. Um, uh, for that oh I've got a sore leg here Mitch yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, that's usually uh, why I don't tell anyone that because <laughs> um, normally as soon as you tell that everyone could be worse like, could be a sore glue <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah true um, so I ended up yeah doing that and then um, went through uh, or, or came to I actually started at Murdoch University which is a university sort of down south um, of here um, and started there um with the idea that I originally I wanted to go into car um, to a chiropractor or be a chiropractor, so I started off in sports science because I wasn't able to get straight into um, to be a chiropractor, and um, and then in the end I ended up liking sports science more, so I stayed with it and mm-hmm. um, and um, yeah, just did my sports science degree. So you did sports science at Murdoch. I started there and I was about halfway through when I made a decision that I wanted to stick with sports science. Yeah, um, I transferred up to ECU just because it was a lot closer. The only reason I was going to Murdoch was because they had the chiropractor course oh, down there. Okay. Um, I did not have. They still did that. Yeah. Oh, I did not have. Yeah. So they're the only okay. university here in WA that had that, yeah. that course. Um, okay. And so the ECU sports science course was, was um, very well renowned. So I sort of said it was closer mm. and it's, you know, it's meant to be a better course. So came up here. And so you finished your uh, undergrad in sports science and what was your next step? What, what did you think you were going to do from there? Um, I think by that point I was... 
don't know, I was kind of weird. I sort of started floating around a little bit then. Um, I actually joined the Army Reserves at that point and I wanted to be full, go full-time Army. Um, but my parents sort of had advised me to do the reserves and try it first before I um, yeah. signed any contracts for full-time. Um, and I was just coaching um, basically full-time at that point as well. So I was coaching tennis throughout my undergrad. Um, and so I was sort of like, yeah, looking for what to do because sports science was is kind of one of those ones that you do it and it's great but you generally have to lead on to something else mm. um you know it doesn't really it's not like you do the sports science and you walk straight into a sports science job yeah um so it was kind of a bit like okay what am i going to do with this sports science degree um i knew i was interested in that in the area um but i just didn't know exactly what to do with it um and then i started my own coaching business um with a colleague of mine who i was coaching with at the time we're both assistant coaches we ended up getting our own club and sort of opening up doing that for a while um whilst i was doing that that's when i made a decision to come back and do a master's in strength and conditioning um at ACU. yeah that's like the number one course in the world isn't it for strength and conditioning isn't it it's like i think it's yeah something like that yeah i think it's, it's, it's pretty good yeah so we had um greg half who was running the course i think he still yeah. is running the course yeah. and he was the president of the nsca yeah um so it was quite well renowned there's a lot of people from um all around the world yeah compared um, to that yeah yeah so yeah it was just kind of like because i was working with a lot of the kids um with coaching and i think once i started working in my own business i was really interested in the, the fitness side of things um and that's where i thought like i wanted to kind of explore that a bit more and, and do the strength and conditioning and then i was trying to able to i was able to incorporate that into my work as well um, yeah. so that was kind of um really good yeah. Now, you never went down the path that a lot of people in the Masters of Strength and Conditioning do and go and work at an elite sports team, like a rugby team or a basketball team. You never went no. down that route. What, what, did you, were you not attracted to that? Um, I was a little bit, but I think because I, I was running the coaching business at the time of going into that, I was yeah. kind of always... You're pretty busy. Yeah, yeah. I, was, I was sort of always doing that. And I was um, always looking at ways to incorporate what I was learning in the masters into sort of my business mm. um, rather than looking at it as, okay, I'm just getting this course so I can go work in an elite yeah, yeah, yeah. sports team. Yeah. Um, so it was more like professional development in your business as opposed yeah. to doing it for a new opportunity in a career. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So that, that's kind of how it... Um, yeah, got back into it and dipped my toe back into university life again. And mm. and then once I did that, I was kind of um, got more interested in the academic side of things and yeah. um, research. Because you did a master's in research as well. Yeah, well, I ended up going because I did a because the S strength and conditioning masters was a coursework masters. Yeah. The way it works here, you can't then go straight into a PhD because you have a coursework masters, not a research masters. Yep. So I had to do what they call an integrated um, PhD which is where they kind of teach you to be a researcher. Um, so your first year is all coursework and then your next three or four years is your traditional PhD. And you get awarded a master's then, yeah, for the first part of that, really? Yeah, so if you if you end up exiting after that first year, they give you a master's in research. Um, whereas if you continue, you kind of just get the integrated PhD. Yeah. Um, I ended up exiting after that first year because I switched my projects at that time so um i technically exited that course and i went down to notre dame to start my phd there mm. um with a my supervisor at the time which was tanya spatiri um so i was going to look at uh agility and well factors that influence performance of tennis players okay um so that was kind of the start of my phd and what i was going to investigate yeah yeah and then i don't know maybe what a year and a half ago you and travis gave me a call yeah, would be roughly about that. Yeah, yeah. And you kind of switched that. topic and came back to ECU. Tell us, yeah. tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So as you can probably tell by now, I jump around a lot to different things. Um, no. So my um, my supervisor at the time, Tanya, um, ended up leaving academia um, and and going into business. So um, or into industry. Um, and so I was left without a primary supervisor. Um, I had Travis already as my supervisor, as an associate supervisor. Yeah. So he ended up taking over as primary. And then um, the way that sort of eventuated that once he became primary, I had to then come back up to ECU because yeah. he's based here at ECU. Um, and it also made more sense as well because, again, Notre Dame's down in Fremantle, which is a long way away. Upside um, the city, yeah. Yeah, yeah so yeah. Fr from, where, from where I was. Um, so, yeah, he became my primary supervisor. And then, as I said, my original topic was looking at 
factors influencing performance in tennis players. Um, and so I kind of, when I went down that path and, and going delving deeper into that, sleep was started off as a small component of, of what I was looking at. It was sort of one, I had like one questionnaire, I think. I was, I was doing a sleep diary. I think, yeah, at the time I just had a, uh, just a consensus sleep diary um, was the only sort of measure I was doing with sleep at the time. And then um, uh, ended up going and doing the sleep course at UWA, um, yep. graduate certificate in sleep science um, with Jen and Kath, and who you know very well. Yeah. Um, and that was sort of based on advisement from Travis. He sort of said that um, it would be a really good thing to, to go and do. And um, yeah, I just ended up loving the um, investigating sleep a bit more and, and also um, sort of the chronobiology um, yep. aspect as well. And um, ended up sort of, yeah, moving my PhD more towards that. I still ended up getting a couple of publications um, out, which um, based on what I was originally looking at. So factors influencing um, performance, um, which was good. So it wasn't sort of wasted or anything like that. I was still able to um, publish that data, um, but moved my PhD thesis um, more towards sleep. And once we decided to do that, that's when obviously we, we thought we need a sleep expert and we gave you a call. So Me? yeah. I don't know, you should have rang someone else. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know, I ended up finishing. Yeah, okay. yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Pure luck, maybe. So, yeah, we, so you, switched, um, you switched topic. I think actually in this room we met the first time, didn't we? We went through yeah. some of the data. Um, it was, yeah, full so, circle. <laughs> yeah. And um, how many publications did you get with your PhD now that have been published? Is it four? Um, of my thesis, I had four studies in my thesis that were all published. Yeah. And um, four published. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so tell us a little bit about those in sort of uh, the sequential order, like the first one right through to the last one. Let's talk about the first one. What, what was that investigating? Okay. Um, so that was um, looking at a, a sleep, just using a sleep diary um, and looking at how that affects um, uh, physical performance of junior tennis players. And when you said junior, what age are you talking? Um, so we had a range from 10 to, I think the oldest was 17. Okay. So you're talking about sort of pediatrics into adolescence here for... Yeah. yeah, because some people often think junior would be like just a skill-based thing. It might be junior, but adults, but we're talking yeah, about actual yeah. age. Yeah, so, so no, 10, we're talking about... 10 to about 17. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So most of, most of them were sort of around that adolescent sort of age. Um, and this was collected here in Perth, and then also I was able to go over to Germany in Cologne um, and test, um, I think we had 15 players over there mm -hmm. um, that were competing, and we did the same testing battery with them as we did with the players here. Um, and... We looked at, yeah, the sleep diary for a week leading up to testing um, and then how that um, sort of explained or correlated with some of their physical um, performance. Yeah. And what did you find in that? So we found um, that the reaction time in a tennis agility test, we actually had developed a tennis agility test based on some previous work we did. Um, and so we found that the reaction time in that was influenced by their self-reported um, uh, feeling of well-rested um, and refreshed, which is a sort of a question they have in their sleep diary. Um, whereas none of the other actual, not that they're objective um, measures, but any of the measures that um, actually looked at sleep timings or anything like that, um, were none of them were correlated with any other performance metrics. So it was basically the, um, the junior players, how well-rested they felt and how they felt from their sleep actually had was the only thing that influenced um, or, or was associated, I should say, with um, their performance. And that was their reaction time. So and, and when you were talking about positively correlated, so if you felt more mm, rested, yeah. you had better reaction time, so you were quicker to react. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. So that's interesting from a coach's perspective or for anybody that's coaching people in that age bracket, you go, you can even simply ask the question, like on a scale of one to five, how good did you sleep last night or how good did you, how rested yeah. do you feel? And the higher the feel rested, the better it is. Because like, as an example, Today, like we were chatting away and it's coming towards Christmas and I was like, oh yeah, like I'm sleeping every night, seven, nine hours, but I just mm. feel exhausted at the moment from yeah. like work and travel and whatever. My sleep is in the right range, but I feel very tired. Yes. I'm just sort of worn out, right? So I'd probably give myself like a two hour five. Yeah. But it, and that's where you could say, right, he's getting enough sleep or she's getting enough sleep, but are they actually feeling rested from that sleep? Yeah, and I think some um, recent studies actually came out and, and said that the um, sleep satisfaction is, um, one of the most important, I think it was the second most important aspect when mm. looking at 
sleep as a multi-dimensional sort of framework that just their feeling um, yeah. of, satisfa- of sleep satisfaction or well-rested. This is interesting because a lot of times we get caught up in the objective measures and, and probably me more than anybody, I, I find to be kind of constantly banging on about objective measures like tigraphy, PSG, you know, mm. use these objective measures of sleep because people are notoriously bad at reporting their sleep. Yes. And they're yep. notoriously bad at kind of, you know, overestimating sleep quantity or basically saying that they feel really bad and they feel really and it should be really good or whatever it might be but this is interesting because you did find a correlation between that so it probably begs the question then is it the fact is it a psychological thing or is it a physiological thing from the sleep yeah and that's what's hard to untangle is yeah. to, as to what um yeah because there is another question that it looks at asks about the quality of sleep yeah and it's a likert scale as well um and with that we actually found um sort of an inverse relationship where we found that they, the better they said they slept, the worse um, their uh, performance was, their reaction time was. Mm. So that wasn't marrying up, um, but it's more like you said, their, their feeling of well rest, um, being well rested, um, that might be not only to do with their sleep, but like you were saying as well, maybe if they um, had they're feeling a little sick or if they had busy, you know, day at school or you know if they're fatigued mm. from you know any other number of reasons or it could also lead to psychological manipulation in terms of going um you know basically the person feels like they're not very satisfied with their sleep but then you can go to them but you slept seven nine hours you're brilliant it's great yeah and then you maybe give them some sort of like um i suppose incorrect feedback on the reaction time oh that's really good but i think you can go faster would that actually yeah. push them in a po- more positive direction and then say to them at the end of the session like See, you slept really good last night. Your reaction time was really good. How, yeah. how positive now? How satisfied you are with your, with your sleep? You know, so it does. It makes me think about the psychological ramifications of how people self-assess their sleep. I actually would like to do this kind of crossover study where we let's say if we categorize people into poor and bad sleepers based upon their actigraphy mm-hmm. for one night, but then yeah. actually give them the opposite. So if you were a poor sleeper, I tell you actually you were really good, Mitch, last night. Yeah, you're gonna you're gonna smash this power test today. And if I was like the really good sleeper, I'd give them the opposite and say, oh man, you slept really bad last night. Do yeah. not expect to have a PB. Like yeah. you're going to be really bad. And just to see I think what happens, do people then go, and then is it correlated also with maybe personality type? Do I go, oh yeah, you told me it's going to be really bad. I'm going to smash this and do it. And it's yeah, really like it. psychological type that's as true. well, you know, in, in terms of like, um, you can correlate, you can categorize people into like different, like, you know, profiles like disc profiles or Myers-Briggs or introvert yeah. extrovert like yes. these would be interesting ones where I think the psychological um sort of ability to get through poor sleep or self-perceived poor sleep or good almost sleep. that resilience of the yeah, person yeah, as yeah, well yeah, yeah yeah so like they someone might have poor sleep but they're very resilient so it doesn't yeah. really affect them too much but which probably gets over into things like special forces where people I think could probably um when they go through big periods of sleep deprivation or sleep restriction, it's probably those people are more resilient just to keep pushing. Yeah. You might necessarily be getting the best people into the special forces team, but you might be getting yes. the people who are best able to cope with sleep loss. Yeah. Which and I often wonder as well, like in special forces, are you optimizing for just sleep, people who can cope with sleep loss, or are you actually optimizing for the best operator in a special forces? Because you could bring people in and go, well, Mitch is really resilient to sleep loss. Maybe we use him in these categories, and then we use other yeah. operators in more short-term well, it's kind of a bit more like the American military model where it's like you're, they have specialists, you know, and, and that's yeah, yeah. slightly different. They're not sort of screening people based on um, their ability to, to screen, uh, to be resilient to sleep loss. But, um, you know, as opposed to the Australian Army uh, or, or Defence Force where it's kind of more of a, we'll teach you a range of, of More generalist, yeah. Yeah, and you have yeah. to kind of do them all. Um, I know there is some research here with some other members um, at ECU that are looking at different screening um, tools that are used by the military to look at, you know, even genetic factors and stuff like that. Um, So, yeah, I think it is something that in the future they will start to do. Um, Mm. But like you said, it might be that, you know, if you're very resilient at sleep loss, you know, that you're used for specific tasks as opposed to just, you know, you're there for because you can do that. Yeah. You're now in special forces. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. And I I don't, I often wonder, yeah. Um, That's probably a separate point. So your second study, what's looking your second one? Um, so the second one we looked at um, 
match by performance. So what we found was in the research, or in the literature, there was a lot of studies that had looked at specific um, aspects of tennis and mainly just around the serve. So they would sort of run seat deprivation studies or, or seat restriction studies um, and then look at serve performance. So we, we just serve As in tennis serves. Yeah, oh, sorry, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, okay. um, so were they more accurate with their, yeah. with their serves or were they more... Um, were they better serve faster or things mm. like that um which which is great but what we we wanted to sort of build on that is go well, that's one small component of of yeah. tennis and, and match play and you know if, if players are wanting to sort of become you know professional tennis players they need to be good at more than just serving a, a tennis ball so um we partnered with tennis west which is sort of the governing body here in um western australia and we uh, looked at um state grade which is the junior state grade um competition and we're able to actually test junior players um in their actual matches so they, they have their weekly pennant competition yeah um and we monitored players for one week leading up to their um their match using actigraphy and a sleep diary um and then the morning of the match we um met up with them again gave them a gps device they wore during the match and we also recorded the match and looked at all their match analytics like statistics like number mm. of unforced errors and winners and things like that um, and we did that for two separate time points during the season. So each player did um, two, two weeks or, or two separate it's matches. It's like a repeat of measures. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so we had um, both male and female um, players in that. And we, we basically found that sleep fragmentation index was the main, um, was the only sleep weight behavior variable to have an influence on match result. Just the number of times to walk up overnight. Um, so this is the um, the sleep fragmentation right. index is that uh, is a metric that is produced by actigraphy, which is like yeah. a measure of restlessness yeah. um, during sleep. Um, and so it's an awakening or arousal, like a yeah. proxy for that overnight. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And did you have that as a sheer number for the whole sleep period, or as a as an average? Like, so did they wake up like? Like let's say 80 times over eight hours, which was an average of 10 times an hour. Is that right? Um, yeah. So it gives it to you as a as a percentage. Oh, percentage. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So um, I believe off the top of my head that it's um, based on um, the epochs and the number of uh, epochs spent awake versus sleep. Um, uh, that's a very crude way of describing. It, I think I think they probably have a fancy way of actually calculating it, but it's 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 basically that um, the percentage okay. of, of sleep so if somebody if somebody goes to bed at ten o'clock at night and wakes up at six in the morning and they're in they're asleep for eight hours, but the epochs in actigraphy, which is the time points, it's recording the actigraphy like any kind of a Fitbit or wearable device is basically saying asleep awake, asleep awake, asleep awake. Mm. It's that categorical outcome. It's always like on or off, on yes. or off, correct? Yeah. And so it's movement or non movement. Yeah, and the that's period, every thirty seconds. The periods yeah. of non movement then are going to be sleep yeah and it's cal what was yours calibrated to 30 seconds 30 seconds 30 yeah. seconds so basically if you fell asleep at 10 but woke up at half 10 actually no sorry the active group i think we're actually 60 seconds so 60 yeah, so a minute so like let's that, say then you woke up at half 10 but you were awake for a minute then back asleep for 10 minutes awake mm. for a minute it's all those kind of fragments aware that, that were awake yeah they're a, the percentage of the overall all night sleep so you could actually say from the eight hours you're in bed you were actually spent 12 percent of that was restless yeah, and I think it's... Um, Restless or awake. Yeah, fr from memory as well, I think it's the higher the better. So it gives you a percentage of, of um, uh, sleep as opposed to fragmented Oh, yeah, sleep. so it's the opposite way around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. I, I have to uh, go back and check that, I think, but um, I believe that's correct. So, okay. um, yeah, so that was what we found overall for match result. And then we also explored um, some specific variables because obviously you can imagine with GPS and match analytics, there's lots of metrics mm. um so we based on some previous literature that had sort of explored what individual metrics um are most associated with outcome in tennis um we we explored them a bit further and looked at association between the different sleep weight behavior variables and and those specific match analytics um and again for for the junior male players we found that sleep fragmentation index was the only um variable to be significantly associated and that was sleep fragmentation um yeah sorry only in male players um with second serve percentage i think was the the metric that was actually okay and it was um, negatively correlated with so the worst the higher the fragmentation the worse their second serves were yeah so it was basically the the um, more fragmented sleep they had um the mm. the worse their second serve overall overall how many hours a night sleep do these um players get 
Um, they were. They did fall within normal ranges. I can't remember the exact number off the top of my so head. So between seven to nine is normal yeah, ranges. Okay, yeah. so they're pretty good sleepers overall. Yeah, yeah. 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 There okay. wasn't any um, any major issues with the okay. with any of their sleep. Um, that sort of builds upon what we ended up looking at as well is the sleep reports of the players. So we um, something that obviously we discussed a lot when you came on board um, as a, as a supervisor is um, looking at the real world application. Of, of all this research. Yep. And so we, um, using the National Sleep Foundation um, guidelines, we sort of um, use their ranges of what's appropriate, um, inappropriate, and then sort of that uncertain range yeah. um, for all the sleep weight behavior metrics um, that were available. And um, we credit individual sleep reports. So if each player got a sort of a number of figures um, that sort of outlined their week of sleep mm. on the two separate occasions, um, and then in those graphs, we had the sort of highlighted ranges of, of green, yellow, and red, and then gave them a bit of a summary as well as um, to what it all means yeah. um, for each player. So we we gave them to each, we gave those reports to each individual player, and we also provided them in the in the um, research and reported it, reported on those reports in the um, in the paper itself as well as a as a practical tool that could be used um, by coaches or. or um, sports scientists and stuff like that yeah so. and so in your last two studies what, what was the goal there so the last two studies so obviously the first two studies were looking at um junior players yeah. so the under under 18 and then we the next two studies we looked at um adult male tennis players yeah um and we wanted to look more into the chronobiology um aspect and also um the diurnal variation um so with tennis we're often playing at different times so Juniors are often playing first thing in the morning around eight eight o'clock. Um, you know, we generally have men's and women's competitions in sort of the afternoon um, at around one to two o'clock, and then um, you know a lot of tournaments, the higher levels, um, as you would have seen on TV, are probably mm. uh, played sometimes at midnight. You know, yeah, even yeah. they they played late in the evenings. So what we wanted to look at was not only the impact of sleep weight behavior, but also um, the impact of, of playing the matches um, or performing at different times of the day. So I can sort of give you a summary of both studies because they're, they're quite similar. The first one was looking at the impact of um, sleep weight behavior and time of day on the physical performance of players. And that also encompasses their skill execution. So we looked at their ability to hit forehands, backhands and serves. Um, and that's both accuracy and, and velocity of those strokes, um, as well as a number of other um, physical attributes like strength, power, speed, and agility. Um, and we tested players at uh, 8 a.m., 2 p.m., and 8 p.m. Um, and leading up to um, all the testing, we, we had players um, wearing act actigraphy and um, completing a sleep diary as well. Um, we then did the exact same study, um, but with match play. So we again had matches at 8am, 2pm and 8pm and we um, we had players wear actigraphy um, and uh, sleep diary leading up to it. They had a raw GPS and got the match analytics recorded as well just like we did with the junior players um, at those time points. Um, and so again we found that um, performance in the evening was actually um, worse and this was in the match play. Um, we found that there was a high number of unforced errors made um, in the evening compared to the morning and afternoon, that um, there was less distance covered uh, and there was um, a decrease in perceived exertion as well in the evening. That may be due to the high number of unforced errors. Um, obviously, if they're then moving less, they're, they're probably feeling like they're exerting them, the um, exertions less as well. Um, but what was interesting is when we looked at study um, three and four combined was that we found that um, the skill execution in the evening was decreased in the players compared to the morning and afternoon, but none of the other physical attributes were. So what it sort of indicated to us, um, if we look at them to combine, was that um, whilst performance in the match play or the matches in the evening was worse, it's probably due to poorer skill execution rather than any physical um, decline or any, any sort of... Um, you know, physical performance issues, um, which kind of is similar to previous studies, which has sort of shown that, you know, um, physical performance can, if anything, be um, better in the sort of late afternoon, early evening, um, which kind of goes against, you know, what 
what we saw, but we did have a lot later time points than a lot of other research. A lot of other research around sort of 4 or 6 p.m., we were yeah. sort of testing players at 8 p.m., so there's probably more of a, a fatigue and, um, you know, build-up of sleep. Yeah, because it is past that kind of work maintenance on 8 p.m. is quite yeah. late, really. Yeah, so it's not it's outside that kind of window of athletic performance where we typically see between 4 and 6 in the evening. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, so Mitchell, if you were sitting down, I'm going to give you two, two scenarios here. Um, uh, I'm not up to date with tennis, but Roger Federer was a very good tennis player. Is he finished? Is he retired? He just retired. Just yeah, retired. Okay. Yeah. So let's say you're sitting down with the young Roger Federer and the Roger Federer. So the young Roger Federer, he's somewhere between 10 to 17. Yep. Based upon your research, you're sitting down there with his manager, his parents, the whole lot. He wants to be the best player in the world. He's the future Roger Federer. Mm-hmm. What's the three things you would tell him to focus on in terms of sleep for his performance? And, and just referencing sleep? Yeah. Um, I think obviously it's still important to look at that healthy um, sleep-weight behaviours. Um, th- even though we didn't find any sort of direct correlation with sleep-weight behaviour metrics and performance, I think that was more reflective of the fact that all the players we tested had or, or fell within that sort of um, recommended ranges of sleep-weight behaviour. Now remember, you're speaking to a 12-year-old kid with yeah. your parents <laughs> and his manager. You, you don't want to go into it. You just want to tell him the two to three things that he might want to do. What would you say to him? What would be the, the three punchy things you would say? Yeah, I'd say consistency. I, say, I try and say to him, try and have regular routines. Yeah. Try and um, always go to, like the same way you would in a, um, a tennis match, try and have your routine before every match. Okay. You would have your routine before every point. Um, example that is Nadal is very, like everyone I think kind of knows yeah. Nadal's specific routine. Um, but I think it's important for him to have his sleep routine. So before you go to bed, have a, have a regular routine. We know that that... Um, improves or that it creates better sleep behaviors or so consistency behaviors. and routine around your sleep work behaviors yeah I, i'd say that's really important the mm. other thing i would sort of say to him is um that if you know that and especially in junior um matches if you know that you're going to play every morning at, at sort of 8 8 a.m or 8 30 a.m is your match mm. is try and, and it's not always possible obviously with school but try and do some training or or, or play um tennis at that time of day as well leading up two matches so replication um, yeah so get into the routine of, of your so your body knows okay waking up at a certain time yeah um you know and then and then being able to i guess physically prepare and perform at that time yeah there's no point training which which is often the case all our training is done after school at 4 p.m or 5 p.m for these junior tennis players and then we go and ask them to play you know tennis and compete in the morning at 8 30 a.m so I understand there's obviously logistical issues, but if they if they can try and have a reg, a regular routine and regular wait times or, or sleep and wait times, yeah. and and if you know you're going to be playing a match at eight thirty a.m., try and make sure your wait times are consistently um, early enough that it's not like you're going to wake up at eight thirty every single morning and then yeah, yeah. the one morning you have to compete, you wake up at seven. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so consistency and routine of sleep schedules, replication and training at those same times, and is yeah. there anything else you would say to that young? There. Uh, regarding their sleep, I'd, I'd try and keep it just. I try and just keep it to that. I think it's just keep it quite simple. I don't think there's anything needing to go um, into okay. more depth. What about the adults then? So adults is a bit different. Yeah. So you get to like the you get to the the the, the, the Nadals or the Federers and they're mm. in a bit of a slump and they're they're struggling. What would you say to them about their sleep chronotype, their urinal variation, based upon your work? What 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 could you definitively say to them? Yeah, so I think that's where you would start playing more in that chronobiology. We, um, you know, I will say we, we did look at chronotype, but we didn't find any association there as well with, with chronotype. Um, now, let's just clarify what chronotype, in case anybody's listening and doesn't understand yeah, what chronotype so is. You've got three different types, yeah? So we, we used um, the three different and also the five different, based on some work by Miriam Judah, looking at mid-sleep yeah. point. Um, so we looked at, um, obviously, just morning type, intermediate so, type, and... And Larry. Evening, evening, evening so time. Old, yeah. And then we had also a extreme morning, moderate morning, okay. intermediate, extreme. So when we talk about chronotype, it's a fancy word for saying I like to get up early and go to bed early, or I like to get yeah. up late and go to bed late, or I like to get up be- I like to get up really early and go to bed really <laughs> yeah, yeah. early. Yeah. Or I like to go to bed really late and get up really late. So it's just really a fancy way. Exactly. and time and type. So time type. Yeah, and so it's we a thought fancy that was word. People get discombobulated with that word sometimes and go like get yeah. all weird, but it's a very simple kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, so we, we thought that was quite obviously interesting. Given that we're playing matches at different times, we thought, okay, well, maybe the morning players are going to perform better in the morning. Yeah. It makes sense. And then evening and evening. But we didn't really find any, we didn't find any association with that at all. But that was, we had a lot of intermediate 
um, types, which is quite common. I think it's about 60% of the population, I think, in the world are, are sort of intermediate types generally. It's a broad stroke. But um, yeah, going, going back to the adult um, professional player or even sort of aspiring professional player, um, I think, again, the consistency is still very important. They have a little bit more um, ability to modify their schedule. So I think if you know that you're going to be performing again or having to play your matches um late in the evening mm -hmm. it's about trying to um in the lead up um, modify your seat wake schedule to um create optimal performance at that time so you know normally we like we showed that 8 p.m is not a great time for playing a match you know based mm -hmm. on the players we tested um but that's not to say that if we could intervene leading up to that point that we couldn't um modify their seat wake schedule so that they are performing optimally at 8 p.m yeah. um now that's i can't say that with any certainty we need to do that research yeah. um but i from the from the findings that we had it would certainly indicate that um you know sticking to your regular seat wake um schedule behavior is not going to allow you to perform um very well if you're having to perform 8 p.m. So it's really the first point really about optimization of chronotype. Yeah. 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 What else would you say to them as the adults? Um, I think this is where, obviously, <coughs> if you're looking at sleep weight behavior, there's a lot more other aspects that come into for adults that we're very bad at managing our sleep compared to kids. We've mm. got influences of alcohol, caffeine. Um, we're often, not to say kids probably aren't stressed but you know we've got work pressure and stress we're often mobile phones things like that in the evening and stuff like that so i think just trying to optimize their um sleep wake behavior um yeah basically their behaviors their habits so um you know we've, we've sort of looked at you know limiting caffeine um in late afternoons um trying to um you know reduce alcohol before going to bed because whilst you know, it might help people go to sleep, which we, we sort of all know about. It's going to decrease their sleep quality. And that's sort of what we found, um, you know, in most of the junior players. And we did um, see some sort of findings as well um, in the adult players where if you have that greater fragmentation or, or uh, increased wake after sleep onset, which is like number of awakenings during the night, that that's, you know, gonna be bad for your performance. Mm -hmm. um, so I think trying to improve their sleep quality is going to be more um, of a focus in adults um, as opposed to the kids where it's just more about the timings, I think. Yeah. Um, because, um, yeah, there's probably less factors that are influencing their yeah. sleep quality or less factors that are negatively influencing their, yeah. their quality. And so what's next now, Mitch? You finish this, you graduate in February, um, yeah. full steam ahead. What's what's your next kind of focus? What, what's your next interests? What are you, what are you working on? Um, well, there's two things. So I'm working, so I've been currently working as a research assistant um, at ECU um, in, a, in a team called um, SPIN, which is looking at um, profiling neurological um, populations. And so I'm leading the um, uh, light therapy trial at the moment. So we're looking at um, the effects of light therapy glasses on reducing fatigue um, and trying to improve sleep of, of people living with different neurological conditions. Um, and I'll be doing that as a postdoc position next year. Um, and then here at ECU. Here at ECU, yep. yep. Um, and then I'm also consulting with yourself and Milius um, uh, Consulting um, and working with different uh, mining companies and sports companies, um, looking at things like rostering and um, some data analysis um, yep. stuff as well, which is really interesting. So, um, yeah, hopefully do some more of that in the future. I'm definitely um, quite interested in that because it um, enables me to sort of combine the, the sleep and chronobiology aspects of, aspect of um, things rather than just looking purely at sleep uh, on its own. Yeah. Um, and then I'm also supervising several um, students, both masters and PhD, um, which is really good because it allows me to still work in the sports space a little bit as well. So one of our students that we're both supervising at the moment, um, uh, Phil, he's uh, looking at, um, or he's sort of working some of the athletic space as well. So it's good to sort of still keep that mm. um, avenue with also, also the consulting as well. Um, it's good to still. So, so where do you see yourself in sort of 20 years? You've had this weird and wonderful path to, yeah. get, to get to where you are today, which I think is great because you, 
you know, you get, you get all these great experiences. You kind of very focus on doing things that you enjoy. Um, you also be very successful, um, which is great. Where do you see yourself in twenty years? What what's the sort of the goal for for Mitchell Turner? Um, good question. Um, not not a hundred percent sure, really, to be honest. Given my path, it's probably going to change a lot. Yeah. Um, I I think I'd like a sort of a hybrid approach of. Um, and, and we've discussed this obviously off off, um, off mic about um, sort of having that uh, research and industry mm. um, balance. You know, uh, I do really like the industry um, side of things or working in industry, um, which I'm sure probably most people listening, if they're in research, uh, can relate to. It's, it's very different um, working yeah. in purely in research and then working in industry. Um, whilst a lot of the time we're trying to research things that are going to be applicable for industry we can kind of get off track a lot um or I, I think it's what i think it's worth clarifying as well we're not yeah. talking about doing research and then doing research with industry funded money we're no. talking about actual doing practical applied consulting in industry yeah. where a paper is not an outcome we're actually no. solving problems very i would say i often use the words quickly and swiftly yeah and it's very kind of quick turnaround doing lots of stuff data analysis strategic consulting education yeah. um on the ground type of research where the outcome is like it could be an engagement from one day to five days to two months but it's very quick turnaround it's very kind of um you know gsd getting shit done really yeah. it's, it's just about yeah. that and where there's opportunities to overlap for research we do it but it's not industry funding it's no. actually industry yeah. consulting it's independent of um the university and I think it's been um, really eye-opening as well, looking at um, what we can do better in research and also what um, what areas in, in industry are um, maybe lacking. And, oh, and, and, 100%. Yeah, 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 and, yeah, and yeah. things where we can sort of be like, well, you know, this is, um, you know, this is something that we, we can sort of help with, you know, mm. quite easily, um, you know, from a, from a research point of view of things we've done and, and implement them in, into industry. Um, but yeah, I think like a, a hybrid approach would be something that um, you know I'd be really liking or, or wanting to do in the future, um, and and just yeah, I, I I like the sleep and chronobiology. I'm, I'm very interested in the chronobiology side of um, things. Obviously, that's where my PhD sort of led to in the end with the the final two studies, um, and I think that's sort of where that that marries up really well with a lot of the shift work stuff that yeah. um, I've been doing with yourself and Milius, um, and um, yeah, I think that's sort of an area of, of research in the future from both the um, industry, whether it's is mining something like that, but also elite sport, um, and and even sort of that um, sub or, or semi-professional sport. Yeah, you know, yeah. that's sort of where I've my background's mostly been um, in that sort of um, you know amateur and and sort of semi-professional level. And I think there's a lot of like most people uh, sort of get stuck at that point. You know, yeah. very few go to that, that high, high level <coughs> professional point, yeah. um, levels. And, and so I think, you know, being able to do a lot more with that, that um, area mm. and work with a lot more of those athletes, um, you know, to whether it's to, to progress them to the professional level or whether it's just to stay and, and, and do the best they can at that sort of semi-professional level, you know, yeah. that's still fine as well. But um, yeah, I think that'd be really interesting to go forward going forwards. Excellent. So um, if anybody wants to find out more about Mitch, they can go on to meliasconsulting.com.au, which is our consulting arm of you know sleep for performance into industry and, and athletes. Obviously, sleep for performance is about education and athletes as well. But um, you can go over to meliasconsulting.com, uh, click into the show notes, and you get a link there. But if people want to follow you individually, Mitch, are you on LinkedIn, ResearchGate, anywhere else working to f- keep up to date with your work? Yes, I'm on um, LinkedIn, ResearchGate, Twitter, uh, all of it. Um, okay. It's... Um, at Mitch Turner two three, I think it's my Twitter, um, and I think that would also be the same for um, for LinkedIn. I think it's just Mitchell Turner. Okay, we'll um, put the links in the show notes anyway, yeah. so people can connect with you there as well. And yeah, um, yeah. Otherwise, um, yeah, just by ResearchGate, you can search, and I've yeah. got my email and stuff on there as well. Great stuff, Mitchell. Thank you very much. Really uh, appreciate. It. Thank thanks. you. Yeah, thanks All for right. everything as well. Cheers and always. <laughs> yes.